Thanks for tuning in to this Journey Bible Church sermon podcast. Join us every week for fresh sermons from God's Word by subscribing to this podcast wherever you like to listen most. If you are looking for a church in the Kansas City metro, come check out one of our church's campuses for worship on Sundays. Now, we hope you enjoy the message. Well, uh, good morning, everybody. Um, hope you enjoyed that clip from Christmas Vacation. So uh, if you don't know me, my name is uh, Colton Tatham, and I'm the West Campus Pastor here at Journey Bible Church. And I, too, know what it's like to have awkward holiday uh, dinners. So uh, I'm sure a few of you are expecting that this uh, Christmas season. So uh, today we're going to be continuing our sermon series in Ephesians chapter 2. So if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to there. And in this message, we're going to be diving into the subject of, surprise, surprise, God's grace. Now, if you've seen the movie Christmas Vacation before, you don't have to raise your hands. We don't want to know who you are. Um, But you'll know that grace can be a bit confusing. Uh, In the movie, uh, Clark Griswold is trying to plan the perfect family Christmas. But the entire holiday is just one long, hilarious, dysfunctional mess after another. When Christmas Eve dinner finally comes around, Clark asked Aunt Bethany to say grace before the meal. But Aunt Bethany can't remember whether grace is a woman she used to know, or if grace is the blessing she's supposed to say, or if grace is reciting the Pledge of Allegiance. I remember as a kid, I came to associate the word grace with prayer. Growing up, grace was something our family gathered around the table for and we prayed before every meal. In fact, it's something that we still do today, whether we're eating at home or we're eating out. If you were to ask me back then what grace was growing up, I would have said, well, that's the prayer you're supposed to say before you eat. Or in the words of Uncle Lewis, grace is the blessing, It wasn't until I was a little older that my parents taught me that the Bible describes the word grace in a much fuller light. 
The Bible teaches us that grace is actually much more than a prayer that we say before dinner. In fact, grace doesn't even flow from us to God. Rather, grace flows from God to us. Before we look at what Ephesians 2 has to teach us about God's grace, let's review where we've been so far in this series and maybe a little bit about where we're going. Whereas Ephesians chapter 1 describes the Trinitarian God of salvation who has blessed us to be a blessing, chapter 2 is all about God's spiritual revolution. Last week, Pastor Mike opened up verses 1 through 7, and this text unfolds for us the incredible reality that God is bringing the dead to life. Resurrection, well, that's an impossible work. It's a work that no doctor, no medicine, no surgery can do. Yet Ephesians 2.4 tells us that God being rich in mercy and great in love, God has decided to choose those who are dead in their sins, trespasses, judgment, slavery, and calamity. He has decided to resurrect them and make them alive in Christ. Now today, we're going to be looking at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 to understand how we're not just brought from death to life, but how we're also brought from wrath to workmanship. As Pastor Mike explained last week, God is not some sort of divine enabler. God is righteous and God is just. There are real consequences and real punishments coming for every evil act, for every selfish thought, and for every atrocity committed in this world. And this divine judgment is something that we Christians call or refer to as God's wrath. Our country is really in a strange time where loud activism wants to experiment with radical new means of justice reform. Now let me stress the word radical. I think most of us would agree that no justice system will ever be perfect on this side of heaven. I know that we have law enforcement and politicians here in our congregation that I'm sure want to see the criminal justice system be all that it can be. By radical, I do not mean no reform, no improvement, no pushing yourself to be the very best that you can be. By radical, I mean there are noisy activists these days who want no justice, no punishment, no judgment. Believe it or not, but in the last 12 months, there have been both legislation and petition attempts to push this through for crimes the Bible considers as serious offenses, like larceny, assault, felonies, and yes, even pedophilia. I don't know about you, but if I never disciplined the children in my house when they were misbehaving, if they kept all their privileges, their snacks, their television, their going out, their video games, even when they knew they were acting terrible, and I instead outsourced their discipline to a therapist for correctional counseling once a week, well, you don't have to be a prophet to know that my kids are still going to turn out rotten, spoiled, entitled, selfish, and rude. As a parent, I'd be an enabler if I didn't enforce consequences for bad behavior in my household. What this teaches us is that proper punishment means privileges and blessings that we've come to enjoy get taken away. Can you imagine 
if God never punished evil? Can you imagine if God let evildoers keep every privilege and every blessing that they've come to attain? It's good that God, like a hero, brings villains to justice. But the real challenge is, is that a lot of us don't want to see ourselves as the villains in God's kingdom. God's wrath is good, but what we're going to see in this text is that God's grace is better. Many of us have been taught to think that God's wrath is bad news. Well, God's wrath isn't bad news. God's wrath is good news. It's good news that justice and judgment is coming. But it's even better news that God's grace has already come to us in Jesus Christ. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and look with me there at Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. And just follow along as I read. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When it comes to those who are being saved, what's truly radical about God's justice and grace is that God doesn't do away with his wrath. Even for those who are saved, there is still a judgment. Judgment doesn't just go away. It doesn't just disappear. God doesn't just decide to show mercy on a sinner that he feels like, you know, I think that this sinner, if they start going to church, they're gonna be a lot better of a person. No, that's not how it works. What's truly radical about God's justice is that his son takes the punishment. God's son takes the wrath that you and I deserve. Wrath still happens when grace happens. It's just wrath happens to Jesus in place of you and me. In grace, Jesus takes the punishment we deserve, and in grace, Jesus gives us a share in the inheritance that he deserves. This is what makes God's justice and grace so much better than the so-called radical justice reform we hear coming from noisy pundits these days. The problem with radical activism today is that it intends to legislate grace. It aspires to turn grace to lawbreakers into a law itself by doing away with an enforcement of the law. But grace, as we see in these verses, is not something that can be legislated. Once you've turned grace into a law, you no longer have grace anymore. And that's because grace is what? It's a gift. And by nature, a gift must be freely given. Verse eight, this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God. The Apostle Paul tells us himself in Romans 3 that it is through God's justice, his law, 
that we learn about the knowledge of sin because without a knowledge of sin, without knowing that we're walking in the way that leads to death and destruction, then we have no knowledge that we need a savior. Ephesians 2.8 is such an important verse in the Bible because it tells us very simply how salvation happens. In this verse, we are told the cause, the means, and the effect. If the effect is salvation for sinners, how is God going to cause this to happen and still be just? Verse 8 says, for by grace. For by grace. Whose grace? Well, God's grace. Grace here isn't Aunt Bethany's blessing. Grace here isn't family dinner time prayer. Grace here is the almighty God's activity towards us. God's grace is the cause of salvation. But no one can give a gift alone. How is the gift of grace received? Verse eight, you have been saved through faith. Through faith. God's grace is the cause of salvation yet it is your faith that he uses as the means of that salvation. Now, I used to think that the world was a lot like a sinking ship, like the Titanic. And the church was out there like a rescue boat, throwing these life preservers out to drowning people to grab on. But then I learned Ephesians 2.1, which says, you were dead, you were dead. Dead doesn't mean drowning. Dead means drowned. Dead means non-responsive, under the water, bottom of the sea. Dead means dead. Until you recognize the danger of your spiritual condition, apart from Christ, you will never truly savor the beauty of God's glorious grace in Jesus. Now here's where I wanna go next in our message. First, we're gonna more fully unpack what God's saving grace is. Second, we're gonna look at what it means to have a saving faith. And then finally, we'll end considering what it looks like for us to respond to God's salvation. So let's take a look again there at Ephesians 2.8. There it says, for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of your own doing, it is the gift of God. Now, there's an interpretive decision that we have to make when we're reading this text. Uh, the verse says, this is not your own doing, and it is a gift of God. So what are this and it referring to? Well, in the original language, there's one of two ways that we can read this. Some interpreters think that this and it are referring to faith itself. Uh, this aligns well with Paul's teachings elsewhere. And if this is the case, we would read verse eight as, faith is not your own doing. Faith is the gift of God. But there's a second line of interpretation that I think is probably more likely here. And that is this and it are referring to the entire activity happening in the first sentence. In other words, saving grace through saving faith is not your own doing. Saving grace through saving faith is the gift of God. Now, both of these interpretations are theologically true, so don't let this cause you to doubt the reliability of your Bible. However, I think Paul's emphasis here is bigger 
than just faith. I think Paul wants the Ephesian Christians and the churches in Asia Minor to know that the grand act of salvation is a gift from God. And it's also worth noting that Paul characterizes this saving grace as a gift, not a reward and not a wage. You know, there's a huge difference between the three. A, a gift is something that's freely given without payment from the recipient. You know, a Christmas present is a gift. I don't really expect my kids to pay me for it. Uh, a reward is something, you know, that's given in recognition of someone's achievement or effort. You know, a Christmas bonus to the Jelly of the Month Club, well, that's a reward. And a wage is a payment given in return for someone's standard work. A paycheck in December is a wage. The big difference between a gift versus a reward or a gift versus a wage is that a gift is not based on the recipient's merit. You can earn a reward, you can't earn a gift. You can earn a wage, you can't earn a gift. This means Ephesians 8 is telling us that God's saving grace can't be earned. There's nothing you can do to attain it. Just like a gift, it can only be received. This should remind us that the power of gift giving remains entirely in the hands of the gift giver. Strictly speaking, there's nothing that you can do to get gifts. If there was something you could do to get a gift, well, then it wouldn't be a gift you're after. You'd be after a wage or a reward. Now, when it comes to God's saving grace, I want us to recognize three features of grace to remember in these verses. First, God's saving grace is personal. Again, God's saving grace is personal. Ephesians 2.8 says, for by grace, you have been saved. This you is a personal direct address to the Ephesian Christians. If you've been following carefully in the sermon series, then you may have noticed that in the first two chapters, Paul shifts between using you and us. He shifts between the two. If you look in your Bibles right now, you'll see this happening in Ephesians 2.8 and then in Ephesians 2.10. In verse 8, he says, you have been saved. Then in verse 10, he says, we are his workmanship. The underlying truth that Paul is communicating through this change is that God's saving grace is personal and that God's saving grace does not discriminate. While Jewish people like Paul, the we, may have become the very first Christians, Paul makes it clear to the Ephesians that God's grace is not limited to one people group or another. Again, if saving grace is truly a gift, then there's nothing that you can do or be born with in order to earn the gift. God has personally chosen you to receive the gift of his saving grace because he is rich in mercy and great in love. This is Paul's big point. Even though the Hebrew people had been chosen to be God's holy nation of priests back in the time of Moses, God sent his son Jesus to be the Messiah, not just the prophesied Messiah for the one nation, but the personal savior for all nations. So first, God's grace is personal. 
Second, God's grace is perfect. Now, we could spend an entire sermon describing what makes God's grace perfect. The scriptures tell us God's grace is sufficient. His grace is abounding. His grace is never lacking. His grace is empowering. His grace is nourishing. His grace is varied. His grace is multiplying. His grace is rich. His grace is glorious. In fact, scripture says grace on top of grace in the Bible. Yet in light of God's justice and wrath, here in verse 9, we could say that God's grace is perfect because God's grace is fair. Ephesians 2.9 tells us God's saving grace is not a result of works so that no one may boast. God's grace does not discriminate on ancestry because it's personal. And God's grace does not discriminate on performance because it's fair. You can live a moral life in your own eyes. You can go through all the religious motions of a saint. You can give a lot of money away to helpful causes, and you can do good deeds for others. But if you don't respond to God's saving grace, then the spiritual reality is, is that you're worse off than a guilty offender in solitary confinement. We shouldn't forget that Paul, whose only crime was being a follower of Jesus, is writing this letter from prison in Rome. Believing in Jesus may have gotten him thrown in prison and house arrest, but believing in Jesus is something that he believed would set him free from the shackles of sin and death. God's saving grace is perfect because no one can boast in their effort, their ability, their talents, their wealth, their intelligence to receive it. God's saving grace is freely and fairly given to all. And God's saving grace is perfect because it's not something that can be earned or achieved. Lastly, God's saving grace is power. It takes power to bring the dead to life. And it takes power to bring believers from wrath to workmanship. But that's exactly what God's saving grace does. Ephesians 2.10 describes the power of God's grace in this way. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. The kind of power that God's saving grace brings into the lives of broken sinners is a cool kind of power, and that's called creation power. Whereas God's wrath is the power to destroy what is evil, God's grace is the power to create what is good. You see, grace is not just a pardon from sin. It's not just a pass to repentant rebels. Grace is God's power to save us from sin, and grace is God's power to restore us as his image bearers. So if we were to put all this together from Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, how would we define God's saving grace? Well, from these verses, we see that God's grace is his personal, perfect power to save. God's grace is his personal, perfect power to save. Ultimately, God reveals his saving grace in Jesus. Jesus, the incarnate son of God, is the one who personally came to take God's punishment on the cross for you and me. 
Jesus is the righteous son of man who perfectly fulfilled God's law when no one else could. And Jesus is the almighty Lord whose power can bring the dead to life. Ephesians 2.8 teaches us that God's grace is the cause of salvation. But we cannot forget that verse 8 also says that faith is the means of salvation. Kind of like two sides of a coin, you must have both to affect salvation. The cause of God's grace, the causes of God's grace, and the means of our own faith, those two can join in order to produce salvation in your life. Now, these verses aren't quite as detailed as other passages in the scripture describing all that constitutes saving faith, but what we can see time and time again in the Bible is that saving faith is a response to God's initiative. God's the one that acts first. Paul makes this clear in Romans 10, 17, where he describes where faith comes from. Have you ever wondered, where does faith come from? And Paul says this, he says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. By nature, hearing is a reactive response. Hearing is the body's reaction to sound. So by comparing faith to hearing, Romans teaches us that saving faith is a lot like responding to the sound of salvation or responding to the voice of God. Now, growing up, one of my favorite Christmas stories was uh, a book called The Polar Express. Anybody read that or seen the movie? Not many. Man, we have a boring congregation here today. Do you guys know how to have fun? Man. Well, see it, watch it, read it. It's great. If you, if you haven't, it's a magical journey, like the story about this magical journey about some kids traveling to the North Pole. And I always like imagined growing up being on this train and the images and the artwork in it are fantastic. Uh, a group of children, they eventually make their way to Santa's workshop where one child is chosen to receive, you know, the very first gift of Christmas. Um, the boy who Santa chooses decides to ask Santa for a single sleigh bell. And he does this because he wants to remember that his time on the Polar Express was more than just a dream. In the closing lines of the story, a more mature narrator says this. He says, at one time, most of my friends could hear the bell, but as the years passed, it fell silent for all of them. Though I've grown old, the bell still rings for me as it does for all who truly believe. Now the Polar Express is a simple Christmas story, yet it's also a profound parable about true faith. Many of us who've grown up believing in Jesus from a young age have experienced what it's like to see others fall away from following Jesus. It might cause us to wonder whether they ever truly heard the beautiful sound of the gospel that we've heard. It might cause us to wonder if their time in the church was just playhouse make-believe. What constitutes true saving faith? Well, I wanna look at four dimensions, and these certainly aren't the only ones, but these are four to get us started. First, saving faith is a relational response in which God calls us to trust in Jesus. No one else's faith can save you but your own. 
For example, you can't borrow my faith in Jesus in the same way that you can't borrow the trust between my wife and I. Trust is a form of personal faith that is created in personal relationships. Jesus calls his disciples to follow me personally. Jesus invites all who hear him into a relationship where he is the one that takes the lead. So the test of saving faith relationally is whether or not you truly trust Jesus to lead your life. Second, faith is a mental response in which God calls us to believe Jesus. True saving faith happens when Jesus' words become the most important source of truth in your life. True saving faith happens when Jesus' ways become the highest authority in your life. If mentally you're your own highest authority, or if God forbid the social media is your most dependable source of truth, then you really probably aren't believing in Jesus. Rather, God calls us to put all our intellectual confidence in him first and then to let his word and his truth guide and renew the way our minds process and experience reality. Third, faith is an emotional response in which God calls us to confess Jesus. And this one here is an important one. If you've never once been moved in your soul by the emotional weight of God's son taking your punishment for you on the cross, well then it's gonna be pretty hard for you to passionately confess Jesus as your Lord and savior. Jesus, the perfect son of God, took the divine punishment for the depths of our depravity upon himself. True saving faith is not merely a mental assent. It is a heart response. At times, true saving faith is gonna emotionally lead you to your knees where you will mourn your sins, regrets, and burdens that have piled up in your life. But at other times, true saving faith will emotionally release you from those burdens in a spirit of thanksgiving for the freedom you've received from the gracious hand of Christ. Fourth, faith is a spiritual response in which God calls us to rely, to depend on Jesus. You'll know you have true saving faith if your faith in Jesus lasts, even during doubts and hard times. You see, people can fake trust in a relationship. People can pretend to believe in a truth and then change their minds. People can act like they're swept up in emotion. But the one thing no one can do is deceive the Holy Spirit God knows whether or not you've responded to his saving grace in saving faith. Salvation isn't a spiritual secret though. The confidence that you can have that your faith is the genuine article is that your faith is alive and stands the test of time. When you stumble, do you find yourself returning to Jesus? When tragedy strikes, do you seek guidance from God? The beautiful thing about faith it is, that, is that it is not the quality of your faith and it is not the quantity of your faith in Jesus that saves you. And that's because it's Jesus who's the one that does the saving. Rather, it's the presence of true faith 
even faith the size of a mustard seed that lasts, that gives assurance in the good times and the bad times that we have indeed experienced the saving grace of God. Now, as we bring this message to a close, I want us to consider the new gifts that we have been graciously given in Christ according to these verses in Ephesians. The first gift is rather straightforward. For some who may be in our congregation today or listening online or maybe watching from home, perhaps God is presenting you with a new decision to make. And that decision is whether or not you're going to live a life of faith in Jesus. If you're tired of living in your own strength, if you're burdened by regrets or a guilty conscience, if you're searching for purpose, identity, meaning, then I'd ask you to respond to the overwhelming grace of God for you and Jesus Christ. Respond by giving Jesus your faith. Start trusting in Jesus to lead you. Start believing in Jesus' words that he teaches you. And start confessing Jesus as Lord and Savior and never stop relying on Jesus for spiritual strength. Now after the sermon, we're gonna move into a time of communion and I'd ask that if God's grace is working in your heart, that you'd use that time, reach out to him in prayer and let him know that you're gonna make a decision to follow Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And if that's a decision maybe you're not ready to make yet, but it's something you wanna talk more about, then please fill out a connect card or talk to me or another pastor here after the service to learn more about what it's like to follow Christ. The second gift to celebrate is a new identity. By God's saving grace in Jesus, we have been transferred from wrath to workmanship. Ephesians 1 taught us that as believers, God has made us his treasured possession. Now here in Ephesians 2, we're taught that we are God's workmanship created in Christ. You are God's treasure, and you are God's workmanship. God has given us this incredible new identity, so don't let the world make you feel ashamed of the gospel you believe in. Don't let the world make you apologize for following Jesus, and don't let the world trick you into thinking you've got to be perfect before you can start following Jesus. As Christians, we are not a completed work yet. We are workmanship. Like a house undergoing restoration, we are works in progress. And Jesus is the good carpenter who is going to finish the good work he's started. The final gift to live out is a new purpose. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. If you look back at verses one and two in this chapter, verse 10 here stands in direct contrast. Verses one and two tell us that in our old ways, we were walking in our trespasses, following the course of the world. But here in verse 10, our new purpose is not to walk in our trespasses, but to walk in God's good works following the course of Jesus Christ. 
What this means is that for those of us who've responded in faith to God's saving grace, God has work for you to do. God has laid out work that he's specifically calling you to do to show the world the riches of his glorious grace. This work is not spontaneous work. This work is not busy work. This work is real spiritual labor that the eternal God has prepared for you before the beginning of time. For some in our church, they felt God calling them to multiply the church by starting a new campus with us on the west side of Aletha next month in January 2022. For others in our church, they've sensed God calling them to reach out to public schools as local missionaries and ambassadors for Christ. For still others in our church, they've sensed God calling them to care for the hurting and to bring the good news of Jesus to the wandering here in our community and all around the world. The good work of God for the church is not aimless work. It's not stationary work. It is purposeful, missional, living work. Christians are not called to be God's puppets on a string. Christians are called to be God's workmanship on his stage. And you know, like a good ballet, Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that God's work is prepared beforehand. These images on the screen are of my sister Emily, and she's performing in the Nutcracker Ballet. And I asked my sister the other day, how much work goes into preparing for a performance? For this particular performance she was in, preparation started six months, so like August, summertime, before the actual event. In classical ballet, there's a director, a choreographer, a conductor, and a lot more other people. And they work together beforehand to choose every design in the set, every costume, every step and move the dancers make, every note the orchestra plays. Even though all this good work is prepared beforehand, we wouldn't say the dancer didn't dance. We wouldn't say that the actor didn't act. And we wouldn't say that the musician didn't play. In the same way, God has spiritual work for Journey Bible Church to do that he has already prepared. And as we'll see later in Ephesians, not all our work as the church will be exactly the same, but together, God will use our work to glorify his name. With that, let's pray. Father God, we praise you for being a God who will one day right every wrong. And Father God, we praise you for being a God who showers us with overwhelming grace. God, for any here who are struggling in their faith, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would give them your personal, perfect power to believe in Jesus as the one true savior and king. God, we acknowledge that there is good work to be done. And God, as we look out at our world, we see it is desperate for laborers. 
Lord, we pray that you would raise us up as your workmanship for your glory. Lord, raise up our church to reach the lost with your gospel. Raise up our church to reach the hurting with your kindness. God, raise up the church to show that you are a God who is rich in mercy, great in love, and glorious in grace. In the name of Jesus, our Lord and Savior, all God's people said, amen. This podcast was produced by Journey Bible Church in Olathe, Kansas. If you're interested in learning more about our church, visit journeybible.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We'd appreciate a positive rating and would encourage you to share this program with a friend. Thank you for listening.